Good evening once again. Good to see everyone out tonight. And Brother Boswell, I'm still waiting for that glass of water. <laughs> Sorry, bro. I know you're busy with all those kids and all. But... Anyways, good to see those that have come along tonight. I want to just uh, encourage the young people, especially those that are in college and university. Um, if you have any friends at school that you feel might benefit from Wednesday night's message, I would encourage you to bring them along. There's a lot of questions that are never answered by the uh, academia today. And uh, I'm going to try and handle some of these things. And, and uh, it, I, I find it very challenging for myself. And uh, I think those that are coming from a college, university background might appreciate what we're going to talk about on, on Wednesday. Now this evening we're going to have a little missionary report. I'm going to talk about Botswana and about South Africa. But before we do that, we want to turn to the scriptures. I've been looking at a couple of verses about the Apostle Paul. And there's four phrases that have jumped out at me looking at his uh, missionary journeys. And we're looking at Acts chapter 17, 18, 19, and 20. There's four phrases in there that I've linked together. And I want you to look at them with me. I don't really have much to say about them, but they're interesting. And, uh, and I would ask you just to, to think about them. Uh, Acts chapter 17 is our first one. When it comes to missionary service, it's so important. And it's a challenge for Karen and myself especially to have a fresh vision when we go back to the mission field and not just go through the, the routine. And in many respects, we want to have a specific call every time we go back that we really sense that the Lord is, is bringing us back. Because uh, if you're bored with your work, it comes across in your message. And, and you're not going to have much fruit and much uh, success in the things of the Lord. And so it's so important just to have fresh enthusiasm, fresh motivation, a fresh calling every time you go back to the mission field. And I'm not sure who the brother was here who's in going to uh, uh, Bolivia. Is it Bolivia? There you are. Good to see you, brother. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you appreciate what I'm trying to say. You've got to have uh, that fresh vision. Now let's look at Acts chapter 17. There's one verse there that we're going to look at, verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. His spirit was stirred within him. A stirred spirit. A spirit that is stirred. That's the first expression, the first phrase. I want you just to hold on to that for a minute. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. If you've got a good memory, just remember it. Now, chapter 18, verse 5. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. He was stirred in the Spirit 
and now he is pressed in the spirit. Look at chapter 19. And verse 21. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So we have stirred in the spirit. We have pressed in the spirit. And now we have purposed in the spirit. And the last phrase is found in the next chapter, chapter 20, and we'll look at verse 22. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Now, I want to just meditate for just a couple of minutes at the commencement of our meeting this evening on these four expressions stirred in the spirit pressed in the spirit purposed in the spirit and then bound in the spirit now the idea of being stirred in the spirit that is something that that all of us absolutely need this is the development of an evangelist if you're not stirred in the spirit don't go in the mission field you're useless out there you need to be stirred in the spirit. And what stirred the Apostle Paul is he was in Athens and he saw the whole city given to idolatry. And the word being stirred almost has the idea of being angry. Being upset to the point where you're angry about it. And I think he was upset. I think he was angry. He wasn't angry at the Athenians for being the way they were. I think he was angry with the powers of darkness that had, had fooled people into being believers of this nonsense, what they were doing. And he was, he was stirred in his spirit. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been to certain situations and you see people that are just so lost and it stirs you? That's good. That is, that is a prerequisite to serving the Lord. That's a prerequisite to, to banging on doors in the neighborhood. That's a prerequisite to teaching Sunday school. That's a pre prerequisite to, to opening the word of God to people who aren't saved. That's a prerequisite to going to play soccer out in the field. Is to be stirred in the spirit. That these people are eternal souls going out into, in, into eternity. And where are they going? God would just love to stir our spirits and, and to cause us to, 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 to grieve for the lost. And you know, I need this myself. I do. I'm not just preaching something that I don't need. Because I need this myself. It is so easy to get into a routine, get into a rut, and go through the forms as a missionary. And, and you've missed out because you've not been moved. by You haven't been stirred. By the Spirit. Then the second phrase is being pressed in the Spirit. And this word pressed is the very same word that is used in, um, let me see, I think it's, I think it's, I didn't put the reference down other than it's verse 14, but some of you theologians will know exactly where I'm talking. And it says this, 
For the love of Christ constraineth us. Hmm? That's the verse. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, if one died for all, then we're all dead. That word constrain is the very same word that is the idea of being pressed in the spirit. And it really, it has the idea of being arrested. And you see, this is what happens in the lives of individuals when they are starting to get stirred in the spirit about serving the Lord. What happens after that is they become arrested. It's like they don't have much choice anymore. They are being, in one sense, they're being um, held captive by this situation. And in order for them to really fulfill God's purpose in their life, is they must go. They must go. I don't think I would be fulfilled unless I went. I had to go. Some people are called to go. Some people are called to stay and pray. And that's really up to God. But we have a responsibility to pray. There is a great need out there. And we have a responsibility to pray that the Lord would, would thrust forth laborers into his field. Not preachers. We don't need preachers. That's good. They'll come. But we need laborers. And that's really what the mission field is all about. So... He was pressed in the spirit. He was arrested. And after this happens, the next thing that happens, look at verse uh, 21 of chapter 19. After these things were ended, now what, what, what after these things, what were they? That was that whole nonsense in Ephesians, in Ephesus, where they, you know, they, the big uproar and all that. After all this, Paul purposed in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedon, uh, Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem. You see, once God stirs your spirit, and once you have been arrested, it is now incumbent upon you to make a plan. You need to act on it. You need to, you need to put, down, put, put, put rubber down where it meets the road. You need to act on these, on these convictions that God has, has placed in your life. And here the Apostle Paul is doing something that drove the Christians wacky they didn't understand him and he was going he purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem and everybody knew what was going to happen to Paul when he went to Jerusalem even Agabus the prophet he took Paul's belt and tied him up and he said this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem and Agabus was right he was true but that didn't matter Paul was prepared to not only be arrested and incarcerated, but he was prepared even to die for the Lord Jesus, if that's what it meant. But he has, he was purposed in the spirit. He put, he put boots to this message. And it was time for him to act on it. You know, oftentimes, believers, they get stirred. And they get pressed. And that's where it stops. They don't... They don't put it into action. They don't make a plan. And I would encourage you to consider this. We need to make a plan. We need to go to work. We need to put this into action. And then, finally, it seems that he was bound in the Spirit. And, um, and now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things shall befall me. And this has the idea of of just, he had now no more choice. This was an obligation that 
the Spirit of God had just placed upon his life. And he had to fulfill this. And he said this, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. He was not going to be held guilty of having a silent mouth. He came in contact with every single soul that he came in contact with. He was prepared to open his mouth and to share the gospel with them. Now these are just four phrases that I have noticed in in these four chapters. And to me it really speaks to me of the development of the evangelist in our brother, the Apostle Paul. Now, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about South Africa and about Botswana. We have been here in the past about speaking about Botswana, and since that time we have now moved to South Africa. But I'm also going to just give you a reminder of what we left behind in Botswana. Now, do I aim it for here? Or... There or where? Which one? Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, there we are. Okay. Now here we have a map of, of Botswana, and it tells you a little bit about where we are. Does this have a uh, laser? I guess not, eh? All right. There's a red button. It's the top one. All right, yes, there we are. There's Maun, and uh, that's where we lived for just over 20 years, in the middle of the, uh, the Okavango Delta in the Kalahari Desert. And um, this is a country of Botswana. It's a landlocked country, uh, very small population. There's just 2 million people in Botswana. And uh, that is the, there are six assemblies in, that, uh, in the country. And there's... Uh, you know, people ask me, why did I shave my beard off? And um, the, the reason was, when I came in here this morning, somebody said, oh, is that your daughter that's with you? And uh, yes, <laughs> so I did have to shave my beard because she's just outgrowing me here. So um, now every, every work in Botswana has started with, with children's work. That has really been the backbone of the Lord's work in Botswana. And um, the, the children are really a, a great... Uh, uh, they're just so lovely they're just really really nice kids and uh, they're so interested in you if you show an interest in them um, it, it, quite often um, uh, Karen and I we're, uh, we'd be driving in the village and in our dirt roads and, and you often hear about a little kid and he'll, he'll point out to you and he'll go Lakoa and, which really means white person and, uh, but it's in the, in the expression like, look, a giraffe. That's the sort of uh, excitement that they have. They've seen a white person and, and uh, they, they just really enjoy hanging out with us and, and we also with them. And so the Sunday school work is a, is a big part of the work. And um, uh, as you can see, when we first moved to Botswana, we bought a, a piece of land in the middle of the, of, of the village and uh, we started to build our house. And um, I still remember we were digging the trenches and our three boys, uh, they, they came when they were young to, to Botswana. Andrew was eight, he's with us tonight, and, and Jonathan was uh, six and, and Nicholas was five. And one thing that we allowed them to do when we left Canada, we, 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 we allowed them to bring their Tonka trucks. Now, um, 
these Tonka trucks were the old-fashioned ones. They're made out of metal. They were really, really powerful, good things. And, and I, I still remember, here's these three white boys playing with their Tonka trucks and 20 African kids around the, in a circle. And that was our first Sunday school. And uh, so under the shade of a tree in that plot, we started to teach the Sunday school. And uh, we started to have gospel meetings on a Sunday. And, um, and the kids were very interested as well as older people. Now, what we like to do is, uh, is we were having gospel meetings in a tent. And we would go to various places in the village and start to preach the gospel. And, uh, and we found that wherever we went, there were always a pile of kids that wanted to, to come to, to the place where we were meeting on Sunday. And so I had to end up with this, my little baki. This is what we call them in Afrikaans, is a baki. And, and uh, we, we, I'd have about 25 kids in the back of my truck. And I'd have to do three loads. And, um, and that, just, that just really uh, wasn't very convenient time-wise. And uh, so we thought, let's just get a bigger truck. And so we, could, we picked up now about 65, 70 kids in the back of the truck. And, and that's how we were picking up the kids. And our Sunday school uh, grew. We, uh, right now, the Sunday school, it was up to 600. It's now down to 400. Uh, when I left them, we left them with two trucks, and uh, they were going to different parts of the village and bringing kids in. But the government has since outlawed us transporting children that way, so that's no longer available. So what we have now is we've got 400 kids coming every Sunday, and they come to the hall, and, uh, and then there's another 200 at another part of the village. It's a satellite Sunday school that we operate at the same time. And uh, Brother Dan in Galuka, who's a Zambian brother who's been working with us there for many years. Um, he carries on another Sunday school there at the same time as the, as the main one at the, at, the, at the hall here. So there you can see what it looks like inside the building. The building is another story. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But we have uh, young peoples as well, as you folks do, and we, we use a PowerPoint presentation and, and uh, uh, give them instruction and things like that. Yeah, he's pretty happy. And of course, the, the, uh, the ultimate goal is to see them saved and baptized and come into fellowship. We were in Botswana in October last year. We had two weeks of, of meetings uh, in the capital city of Habroni, and we met this young lady. We, uh, we led her to the Lord many years ago, and um, she studied. She's a physiotherapist now, and she's now in the assembly in Habaroni. She's just a lovely, a lovely Christian girl. There were many opportunities to share the gospel in the village. Uh, there was a certain uh, place in the um, main street. We used to call it, the, the boys nicknamed it Underwear Alley. And uh, it was, seemed like there must have been a shortage of underwear because every stall was selling ladies' underwear and men's underwear. And it was just, you walk down the street, there was just tables and tables of underwear. So I set up a book table there. And, uh, and we started to sell Christian books and Bibles and give away gospel tracts. And it was a really, really great, great opportunity. And of course, the prison was a, a, a tremendous opportunity as well. Um, we had, um, on one occasion, we had... Um, it was very early in the work, and we had put up a sign. This is before we had a building. We were just meeting in our house, and um, we put up a sign on our door, on our gate, and uh, it, it was the name of what the assemblies call themselves in Botswana. 
in Setswana is called Intol Yaifangheli. And, um, and so there was a prison officer, he was a prison chaplain, he was walking down the street once and he saw, he saw the name Intol Yaifangheli and he says, no, I know that name. And he rang the gate and, and uh, he says, are you related to, are you friends with these other Christians? And he was referring to Jim and Irene Lake who served the Lord at Sarowe. And I said, yes, we're colleagues of them. And he says, well, yeah, I know you guys preach the truth here. Can you come and preach in our prison? And I said, sure, I can do that. So I went there for about 12, 13 years every Wednesday at uh, 7 in the morning to the prison officers and, and also to the prisoners. And uh, it was a great opportunity just to share the gospel with these guys. And uh, there was one guy there. He was, a, he was a pastor of his own church. And he used to tell me... I. I'm taking notes, and I preach your sermon in my church on the following Sunday. So, Now, this was the uh, opportunity to share the gospel in different areas of the village. We would bring our benches, and we would set up a, the tent like that. And, and uh, there's another young lady who's trusted the Lord. She's going on for the Lord. And uh, there's the assembly name there, Intoyai Fangheli. And... Uh, well, like I said, the kids, they just, they, they think the circus has arrived when we show up with our gospel tent. And uh, they say, what's the white people going to do now? It's very interesting. And they, they just really, and you know, it's amazing. You can set up a gospel tent in the middle of nowhere. And, and, and we had like 300 kids. Linda, you know what that was like. 300 kids in no time. Just, uh, and adults as well, of course, come and fill the tent and, and listen to the gospel. Now, we, uh, we first started meeting in our house, and uh, our house became too small. So then I built this thatched roof church building on the corner of our plot, and uh, eventually um, we decided to, to move it onto its own plot so that the assembly could be responsible for its own building and its own plot. And so we dismantled it and reassembled it again in this other plot, and, uh, and as things began to develop and grow, we thought, you know, this village is starting to grow. It's getting new modern buildings. It would be really nice if we had a decent building to meet in. And um, so we, we prayed about it. And, and on one of my furloughs here, um, we had mentioned it to a, a friend of mine in Canada who's a, an elder in one of the assemblies. And just we had met once a week for a while just to pray and I mentioned this as an exercise that I would like to have done. And somehow the word got out, and we didn't go around canvassing or advocating or anything like this, but, but the word got out, and, and uh, well, we eventually, um, this one brother, he said to me, he says, I hear that you brethren are wanting to build a, a building in Maun. And I says, yeah. He says, what do you think it would cost to... Put the, get the walls up to roof level and I thought oh boy I have no idea I just pulled a number out of the air I said oh probably about 25,000 he says okay well I, I can afford that and he wrote me a check for, for $25,000 I should have asked for 50000 it was that <laughs> and, uh, but anyways um, he, he gave us 25000 and that was the start of, of the work and we started to build our, our, our little Bible chapel up there and um, it was really amazing, um, the, you know, just to give you an idea of, of the work standards that normally would be done. 
And we're digging our trenches and we're putting our reinforcing bar in the trenches and everything's done by hand, concrete. And, and uh, the inspectors come and they want to inspect to be sure that your work is up to standards. And uh, it was so cool because uh, he looked at the trench and he looked at the steel and said, no, that looks pretty good. You fellas seem to know what you're doing here. He says, and here, let me give you the piece of paper here. And on the piece of paper, he says, now these are all the stages that need to be um, checked and confirmed and listen I know you're going to do a good job just put the dates down when you've done them and I'll come by at the end and sign them all off then so that was cool so we just did that and uh, so we, we, we built the building that way and uh, we can seat 500 people in this chapel and uh, believe it or not there it is uh, I built that for $85,000 now we were telling the brethren up in uh, Jupiter last week and they said, can you build us one for 85000 <laughs> I don't think so. So anyways, that was, uh, that, uh, and that was just really an exciting time to see the Lord without canvassing for money, without talking about it. The Lord just sent money in. And people said, listen, I hear you're doing this. Can, is there something we can do to help with? And, and we had some work teams come out. And, and it's a beautiful little building. And... Uh, and we've been able to use it for the Lord. This is the Easter conference. Uh, back then we hosted it uh, for the country. You can just see the amount of people that came. Now this was our last Sunday in Maud before we left and moved to Cape Town. And, and you can see the, the little group that we left behind. And um, there's an assembly of about 20, 25 believers in fellowship there. They have a large Sunday school, as I mentioned earlier, and they're growing and seeing the Lord's blessing. And, and to me, it was one of the most rewarding experiences, and to my wife, just to have a vision and to go up to a place that was virgin territory and pioneer the gospel there and to leave it with what we have left it there. And, and this is by no means attracting attention to myself but it was really a rewarding experience and we just praise God for what he has done and it was all glory to him it was a tremendous tremendous experience it, uh, it really was now I wasn't going to show this but talking with um, the Ward family that lunchtime, I just thought you know I didn't include any animals this time in the uh, in the uh, in the report, and I thought, well, you know, this is such a, a crime because we are up in Maun is the greatest place in the world for safaris and, and things like that. So I thought, let me just tell you a little story about trolling for, for crocodiles. Now we like to we like to go fishing up in uh, up in Maun in the Okavango Delta, and uh, the the sport fish that we go fishing for is the is the the African tigerfish. And that's why it's called the tigerfish. You can see his, his teeth there. But um, this particular day, I was out with Nicholas, my youngest son. And uh, we were, we were uh, traveling up the river on the boat. And uh, there was this, this, this river is filled with crocodiles and hippos. And there was this crocodile here. He was on the side. And he was just sleeping there. And we noticed him as we, we went by on the boat. And then we went a little further, and there was this huge one. And you can't really see him there so much, but you can see his teeth. And uh, that was a big, big croc. So, uh, again, we went a little bit further, and we had come across another crocodile, a smaller one. And he had killed a Sidatunga. 
uh, Asitatunga is a very rare antelope and it has the ability to, to walk on the reeds. It's got very long um, uh, toes on its, on its uh, hoof and it can walk on the reeds. And, and anyways, this croc had killed Asitatunga and as we approached it in the boat, we spooked the croc and he, he left this big chunk of meat sitting there floating. It was bloated, as you can see. And, uh, and we thought, well, this is cool. So... Uh, we, we knew that there were those two big crocs down, downstream, so um, we, we just sort of encouraged it to go in that direction, and we thought, let's just watch and see what happens. And it went by the big croc, and nothing happened, and then it went by the little croc, and nothing happened. And, and so that's Nicholas, my youngest, and he says, well, let's go get it, Dad. So we went downstream, and he tied a rope around his neck, and we dragged it all the way back upstream again. And this time, Nicholas is slowly feeding it downstream to the to where this big croc is and uh, just to see what happened we think you know if he ever gets a hold of that Nick's going to go flying and uh, anyways it went past again the big croc and it went down to the little croc the smaller croc and he saw it he went in and he made a little splash which alerted the big croc and the big croc went in it was a big splash and, and, and the thing was gone went right under the water it was uh, and, and that's what they do. They will, they will take their, uh, if they're big enough, they will, if the croc's big enough, they'll take their, their kill and take it under the water and leave it in a, in a little uh, dugout spot in, in, in the side of the, the bank of the water. So anyways, that's, that's, that's uh, our story of, uh, of uh, trolling for crocodiles. Now let's do some more spiritual things here and talk about the future work in Cape Town. So Cape Town, uh, why did we move to Cape Town? Well, obviously I've got difficulties with my legs. And we, were, we, we really felt the Lord was sending a clear message that we needed to make a change for health reasons. We needed to find a place where I could get some physiotherapy and uh, be able to get some help that way. And so the, the, the questions was, go back home to Canada or, or go south? And so we... We thought, you know, there's, there's still a few years left in us, and I think we can maybe serve the Lord in Cape Town. And so we moved down there, and uh, there's, this is the city of Cape Town there. It's a beautiful city. Uh, it reminds me a lot of Vancouver, where I used to live in, in British Columbia. But um, the population of, of Cape Town, the metro area, is 4 million people. And uh, with the suburbs, you're looking at 8 million people in that area. So a lot, a lot of people. And then uh, unemployment is very high in South Africa, 24%. And HIV infections, we're looking at 19%. But this is something that's really astronomical. Living on less than a dollar a day, 35% of the people in Cape Town are living on less than a dollar a day. Can you imagine having to live like that? And the languages that they speak, uh, Afrikaans, English, and Kosa. And so we had to uh, uh, endeavor to learn another language. So this is uh, what you find in a lot of the areas in Cape Town is they have these undesignated settlements. And um, you get people who are coming from the Eastern Cape or some of the other provinces, and 
they're looking for work and the Western Cape is probably the best run province in the country and so they come there thinking they're going to find work and they don't find it and, and this is just uh, look at that settlement that's as far as the eye can see is tin shacks and these are filled with, with gangsters with crime, with prostitution with, with uh, drugs it's just a, 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 a terrible, terrible place. It's dangerous to be around there, as you can imagine. And, you know, I'm not sure what we can do, but I I'm, I'm, I feel like the Apostle Paul. I'm stirred when I see something like that. I see, see the lost in that place, and, and we're really not sure what to, what to, to do. But I, I'm burdened about that, and I just want you to see that. Now, we have to uh, learn a new language. Um, we... We, uh, Afrikaans is really the, the big language in, in South Africa and so we, we started to take uh, Afrikaans lessons we, we took about six months worth of lessons and um, we are starting to just feel a little bit uh, starting to hear it a little bit more and, and we can try and use it I can pray a little bit in Afrikaans but we're by no means, no means uh, fluent now in the Cape Peninsula, there's about 30 assemblies right in the Cape Peninsula and traditionally they have been divided up into your blacks, your coloreds and your whites. Now in the apartheid days that was how things were done and um, uh, the reason why they uh, were like that is the there were certain areas that coloreds and blacks were not allowed to go into and so they had to meet in their own areas and, and the whites met in their areas and so this uh, sort of is still there somewhat but not where anywhere near like it used to be most of the white assemblies have closed they've either gone ultra liberal or they have just dwindled and died and a lot of the expats the, a lot of the the white folk, when it went under African rule, they thought this is it, the end of the world has happened, and most of them, many of them, have emigrated to Australia, Canada, the U.S., etc. They've, they've left and New Zealand. And so a lot of the assemblies have suffered uh, as a result of that. This is one of the last white assemblies, uh, and it's by no means exclusively white anymore. It's, it's probably more half and half and it's a really, really nice mix. And, um, and this was the assembly that we joined when we uh, went down to Cape Town. It was a, a really positive experience for us. They're such kind believers, and uh, we really felt uh, at home there. Now, this is uh, one of the things that we produced there. This is a John 3.16 in Afrikaans. And, you know, now we were forced in to... Uh, we now had... Uh, We've gone from the African village where people will cross the street to receive a gospel paper from you. You, know, you can give away hundreds of them in, in, in ten minutes. But now you're in, again, a big city. We're in your situation. How do you reach? How do you get out to the community? How do you share the gospel to these people who are so, you know, uh, behind their walls? And, uh, and so I suggested to the brethren, and I came across this idea on the internet, and I suggested to the brethren, listen... We've got a parking lot here that we are not using. Why don't we do something like a car wash and start, have a series of gospel meetings, but get out to the community and, and offer a free car wash and also free, a free boervoir. Now, what's a boervoir? That's a, 
a South African hot dog, but much better than your hot dogs, okay? So there were, and so what we did is, is we, we did this, and our young people went out on the street with banners, free car wash, free bourgeois, and uh, we got a lot of people to come in, and we started to wash the cars, and as people came in, we had uh, gospel literature. We were able to talk to them. We went around the whole neighborhood with those John 3.16 texts in, in Afrikaans and English and invited them to come. And everybody got involved as we, we washed all these vehicles. And then they, and the, the Afrikaans people, they can smell a braai a mile away. And the, a braai is a barbecue. And it just draws them. And, and they can smell the onions cooking and the, and the boervors are on the braai. And, and people started to come, and there's some of our ladies in the assembly there. And oh, another thing we did too is we have one of our brethren has a race car. This is it here. This is an Adam, and uh, this is one of the fastest cars you've ever driven in. It goes zero to sixty in two and a half seconds. It's awesome. And uh, so we parked that out front, and of course all the guys in the neighborhood have got to look at this thing. So they're all coming along. And uh, we parked it out front, and uh, here's some neighbors that come and look at it. Wow, that's really... And then we tell them about the gospel, give gospel papers out to other people. Of course, I get a ride in it, so that's always fun. And, uh, and so there was our, our gospel campaign in, in, that, in that area of, of, uh, of, of Cape Town. So what we did also, um, we invited Sandy McEachern to come down, and... Uh, he was our preacher for the first time. We did this twice now in Cape Town. The first time we invited Sandy McEachern to come down. And uh, he came over and, and uh, we had a lovely week of gospel meetings. There were two people that trusted the Lord in that week. And then, uh, and then we thought, let's take all of our young people from our assembly and we're going to go to another village about four hours away. This, the village is called George. And, uh, and we're going to do the same thing over there. So we, we took all of our young people, and, and on top of that, we, had, we started off our mornings with Bible teaching sessions and, uh, and how to study the Bible. And then the evening, we had gospel meetings. And, uh, and uh, during the day, we went around with the Afrikaans, John 3.16 text, and we in, invited the people to come in. And, you know, I have to use a wheelchair at times, and it seemed to work all right. Those girls were pulling me all over the place, and it was pretty good. And then uh, we had, uh, there was Sandy, and we had our Bible teaching time in the morning. And it was a really, really, really awesome time. So these are just a few things that I'd ask you just to pray about. Um, this, is, uh, this is actually Cape Town in the evening. That's Table Mountain. But um, uh, you, you might want to remember in your prayers the little assembly in Maud. Um, the brethren there are, are, are plugging away. They're faithful. And in particular, the one brother from Zambia, his name is Dan Ngaluka. And uh, he's really holding the fort together there. And uh, he's a full-time worker, commended from an assembly in Zambia. And uh, we just uh, really appreciate what Dan is doing. Then there's uh, our own health concerns. As you can see, I'm, I would love to be able to get my legs back. And uh, we just leave that with the Lord. And then... Uh, we, uh, like I mentioned about, uh, you know, we need to be stirred in the spirit. We need to have God speaking to us and giving us clear direction. And, and we would really like to have a clear vision that God has given to us in the days ahead when we go back to Cape Town and, um, and, and serve him there. We would like to have 
a really clear focus of what our ministry is going to be over there. There are so many opportunities and so many different things we could be involved with and we're just trying to really be clear before the Lord what he would ask us, what he wants us to do. So those are a few things that uh, uh, I would just uh, thank you for your attention and just uh, uh, trust the Lord will bless you and um, we would love to have you come and visit us sometime if that, if that opens the door for you. We're going to be in North America here till um, February 2015 and then we, we are expected to fly back at the end of February back to Cape Town. Let's just bow our heads and ask God's blessing. Yes, but Okay, that's a good question. Uh, we have a minute or two, so we could ask a few questions. Um, the question is, what happened to me physically that I'm having this problem? When we first went to Botswana in 1991, I came in contact with... Uh, I was sick. I came down with a flu. And I came in contact with a man who had TB. He came in to visit me in my room. And um, the theory is that I... I contracted TB from him and with my particular situation the TB didn't just go into my lungs it passed it, it went into my sinuses because I had infected sinuses and then passed into the meninges and it developed into TB meningitis and so within six months of going to the mission field I was on a, a plane coming back to Canada I was paralyzed from the waist down and um, I managed to recover uh, very well uh, after 18 months of therapy I could walk very quite well without any aids without any sticks but in the last 10 years my legs have gotten weaker and weaker and weaker and the doctors have really uh, no answer they have scratched their heads trying to figure out what the problem is they have done I've had numerous MRIs done of my spine um, there is a cirrhex on my spine, which is a result of the meningitis, but that hasn't changed. They have monitored it, and it hasn't changed whatsoever, so there's no further uh, neurological deterioration. But recently, we've come uh, up with this idea that there is a certain drug that I would th I've been taking, and it's called Ciprobay. It's an antibiotic, and it's used quite often for bladder infections and in September last year the FDA has forced Bayer to put a, a warning on their box that this, could, this drug can cause permanent neurological side effects and I have been taking this drug off and on for the last 12 years and the suspicion is that what I have what has happened to me now is a result, a side effect of, of that particular drug. I, I appreciate that very much. And, and we actually have, I've been seeing a homeopath in Cape Town, and she is the one who has discovered this. And she's, she's not just a homeopath, she's also a surgeon, so she's not just a quack. Uh, pardon me if you're a homeopath and don't take it. So um, she, she says that, listen, a colleague of hers has also had a client, a patient, who has had the same reaction to Ciprobay, and she ended up in a wheelchair. And the 
they went through a special detox of a homeopathic medicine that is supposed to take the toxins out of your body. And this woman has recovered to the point where she's walking again. So I'm, I'm on this detox now. And it's, um, it's a strange sort of thing. You have to take this stuff until it makes you feel ill. Then you go off it. And presumably, after you go off it, you start to feel better, to a little bit better than you were before. And then you take it again until you start to feel ill. And then, again, the same thing. So I'm, I'm in the process of experimenting with that. So I have all this homeopathic stuff that I've been given before we left Cape Town. So we just pray that this is really the answer. So we'll see. All right. Perhaps, brother, you'd like to pray. Do you just pray and close the meeting?